five, but the first thing I want to, I just want to start off with a little, uh, not really trivia, just interest. Who are some rich people in the Bible? Now, I don't like you, I, I know uh, I've heard a lot of people use the term Bible characters. I don't necessarily like the term character. It makes me think of like a story or a fictitious account, just as personally speaking. But as far as people in the Bible, uh, who are some people in the Bible that you can remember that were actually very rich, very wealthy, huh? Abraham, Abraham Solomon. Okay, the rich young ruler, you know, he spoke with Jesus. Better? Job, yep, definitely. Anybody else? I want to see if you got anybody on my list that I didn't get. So you said Job, Abraham, Solomon, huh? David. Okay. Who is a wee little man? <laughs> okay. Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus? So when Abraham ended up rescuing Lot, where did he go and who did he see? We were just talking about this this morning. Well, he went to see somebody. He saw somebody. Melchizedek was a very rich person. What about Joseph? Joseph? I think rich, right? There's one other Joseph that I think was a very rich individual in the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea. You see? The Bible has the Bible has a lot to say about rich people in a negative light. But the Bible also has a lot to say about rich people in the Bible in a positive light. So what's the difference? The difference is really, what, how, how is that money being stewarded? Where is the focus of the wealth that God blesses an individual? Now these people that are on this list with Job, Abraham, Melchizedek, Joseph, Solomon, Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, we don't see anything negative about their riches. You know, so... We're going to dive a little bit into the aspect of wealth tonight. And a lot of times, I, I, it tripped me up in the past too, where the verse says, money is the root of all evil. <laughs> That's not it, is it? Well, there you go, Warren. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so we typically have two extremes. You have one extreme where people say money is bad. But on the other extreme, they say poverty is bad. So you really have these two opposite and extremes. And really, from a biblical perspective, neither poverty or wealth are looked at in a negative sense. It's all about what's being done with that poverty or with that wealth. And we're really going to dive into that this evening. And so I just wanted to see, you know, how many rich people could we think of, at least in a positive light here, from the scriptures. But tonight we're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We'll read a little bit. Then I'm going to park for a minute because it's amazing. When you're studying something and you're like studying it, some of the verses and the passages, you're like, oh, this is easy. We can apply this all day, every day. You know, we've heard thousands of sermons and teachings on this stuff. But I got tripped up on one particular part on this, and that's probably what took most of my studies uh, this past week or so. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. But in James chapter 5, verse number 1 through 6, it says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. 
Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. See, there's probably a lot we can talk about in these first six verses. And probably a lot of what I'm not going to touch on and cover tonight, you may be able to speak on and maybe share your insights as well. I just want to go ahead and show you a little bit of an exegetical journey that I've been on myself. You see, the first part here in verse number five, chapter 5, verse number 1, where it says, go to now. He, he's trying to get their attention. Listen here, come now. Then he says, ye rich men. You see, he's just got done talking to believers, these Christians. He got done talking about uh, good Christians that are living faithfully in Christ. He's got done rebuking poor, carnal, worldly Christians for being the enemy of God. And it's interesting because then here in verse 5, he says, you rich men. So the question is, who are these rich men? And in studying, there's quite a disagreement. And it doesn't matter if you're Arminian or you're Reformed or you're Free Grace. Regardless, whatever camp you're under, there's quite a disagreement as far as who are these rich men that James is actually talking about here. And I was really looking and trying to figure out, okay, there's really two schools of thoughts. One, as you can see up here, is materialistic believers. We've already seen these elsewhere in the letter. You know, these are the, the Christians that are very worldly-minded, carnal. He just got done talking about these people. In chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he talks about their prayers, that they're not getting answered. One of the reasons is because they want to consume their prayers on their own lusts that they have improper motives on what they're asking and why they're asking. So one thought is materialistic believers. Another school of thought are wealthy unbelievers. These are legitimately rich unbelievers, people that are not Christians, that James is speaking about. And so I want to look at, you know, what do we think? You know, have you ever studied this out? These rich people... How many people would lean towards the fact, maybe these are the materialistic believers. These are worldly Christians. And I'm curious, why? What, what sort of things in the book of James do we see that this could sort of paint that picture that these are believers that are just focused on their wealth? Matt? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Okay, so, so one thing is a lot of times, you know, 
or sometimes people will come to scripture thinking every judgment is eternal judgment or going to hell, things like that. And that's not necessarily the case. Matter of fact, when you read the word salvation or saved in scripture, it more often means physical salvation. And so, and then like you're saying, the context, I mean, James has already rebuked a lot of carnal Christians in this letter. I mean, one of the most scathing things that he said about them was he called them adulterers and adulteresses and that they're an enemy of God. And so that's one thing. Anybody else, any other reasons why you would think this might be materialistic believers? Okay, maybe James doesn't care what unbelievers are doing with their money. Right, but it's more like he's there if, if uh, this is a pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he's got quite a leadership position, then he's probably more concerned with discipleship of believers than rebuking unbelievers who probably are so far that they probably aren't going to change, especially once they have wealth and riches in their pockets. Anybody else? Okay, these are some of my thoughts. You see, within the context of James, like what you were saying, Matt, he just got done talking about how their riches, they, they want more material possessions so that they can fulfill their own desires and lusts. If we remember back in James chapter 2, verses number uh, 12 and 13, we read that, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty, that there's this understanding in this inference of what's known as the judgment seat of Christ, that every Christian is going to give an account before Jesus Christ on how they served Christ. Now, the outcome is not going to be dependent upon whether you go to heaven or not, but the outcome is going to be dependent on whether you receive rewards or loss of rewards. Is that wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, or precious stones. And then when you get into chapter 5, and you're in 13 and 6 through 16, there's a message about judgment against carnal Christians. And we're not going to get there tonight, but last time we're going to get there uh, when it's talking about praying for those that are sick. And that if they have committed any sins, they would be forgiven to them. A lot of people I believe that that passage is talking about some people that are coming under judgment of God, becoming sick because how they are living. And we know in Hebrews chapter 11 or 12, I think it is, that talks about whom God loves, he chastens, and he scourges those that are outside of his will for rehabilitative corrective action to try to bring them back. Contextually, within the book of James and the letter of James, there's some admonition to believe that this is talking about wealthy believers. How many people think this is wealthy unbelievers? I'm curious. Anybody ever really think about it? Am I the only one that stays up late at night for like, who are these rich men? Who are these people, right? Okay. How many people think it doesn't really matter? Okay. Okay. A couple. All right. These are my thoughts as far as the wealthy unbelievers. Now, when we look at this, when we're reading these passages, and we're sort of going to break this down, the judgment that's being mentioned to them and against them is judgment that is in the perfect tense. These things aren't going to happen. These things have happened. It is in the perfect tense that their, their gold, silver is corrupt, that they, their materials are, going, are corrupted, and these are all in perfect tense. This judgment is written as if it has already occurred. James, a lot of people believe that this is simply like a prophetic outburst. This would not be uncommon in the Old Testament prophets, whether you read some of the minor prophets 
where the minor prophets would be speaking to a group of people, to Israel, and then next thing you know, very abruptly, he starts having this outburst, if you will, changes his audience very quickly and starts judging a different people group without any really recollection of, you know, him changing it. Here in this next verse, it says in verse 6, it says that they have condemned and killed the just. Now, when we're looking at this in chapter 2, verses number 5 and 6, we read James writes some other things about the rich as well. And in chapter 2, verse number 5, he says, uh, uh, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And then he says in verse 6, talking to these worldly Christians at that time, he says, but ye have despised the poor. And he says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. And then he goes on to say, do not, do not they, the rich people, blaspheme the worthy name by which you are called. And so here he's saying, okay, there's these rich people that not only are pulling you and putting you in front of the court system and trying to bring criminal accusations and charges against you, they're blaspheming the name of Christ, whom died for you. It's interesting, whenever uh, you read the word brethren in here, we talked about it before, brethren's used 15 times, the word beloved brethren is used three times in these five chapters. Whenever James is rebuking the Christians, he will still call them brethren. We see this in chapter 2, verse 1, 3, 10, 4, 11, and 5, 9. That even though James is rebuking uh, worldly Christians, he tells them, brethren, these things should not be so. He calls them brethren. And so brethren could mean a couple different things. It could be a sort of like a family member, could be a countryman, or could be a Christian brother or sister in Christ. And so I see in Scripture that, hey, brethren, if he's rebuking them, regularly in this same letter, he's also still calling them brethren. It's interesting because it draws a contrast between the rich. And then in verse number 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brethren. So it seems as though he's contrasting these rich people with these brethren. Then the other thing is, I would explain the analogy of them, these brethren, if you will, in the Old Testament saints, which we'll get to later. So the question that really plagued me and really got me thinking is, are these rich men that James is writing about, are these materialistic believers, carnal Christians, or are these wealthy unbelievers? Now, there's a lot of people that have the school of thought that it doesn't really matter right? And I can honor and I can definitely respect that school of thought. Uh, reason why it matters a lot to me personally is because as somebody that tries their best to exegete this, these 66 letters, one of my main job and one of all of our main jobs is to get what's known as the authorial intent. What is the intent of the author of the letter, the author of the book? I know that when I stand before Jesus Christ, if I claim Scripture says something and I didn't do my due diligence to find out what way I'm convinced one way or the other, or maybe say both sides are, have good possibilities, so I'm going to leave it open. Sometimes I do that. This matters a lot to me personally because application may be very similar. I think there's a bit of a difference, and I'll explain it why. 
But I just know anytime I come to Scripture when I'm teaching, I want to make sure that according to 2 Timothy 2.15 that I've done everything I could do as opposed to reading all these different doctors saying, oh, it's this, oh, it's this, oh, it's this, oh, it's this. Oh, so we don't know. I'm saying, no. What does Danny think? What have I studied and put into it? Because if I'm to study myself, study to show myself approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, then I could care less really what all these people have to say until after I study it and then see what I think about it. And then I can look at, okay, what are some smarter people than me think? And I say, okay, but at least I can put the time, energy, and effort into it. And so there have been some people I've talked to before. I put a post on Facebook as well. Hey, who are your thoughts on this? And that was somewhat of a consensus. Huh? You know, maybe we just don't know. I just don't really like that explanation, you know? And so it matters a lot to me on who these rich people are. That's why it's a big deal to me. To me personally, and this isn't something I would literally be dogmatic about, but based on my individual studies... I personally believe these are wealthy unbelievers. The rich is used euphemistically, I believe, of unbelievers. We can go back to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and therefore the brethren, even though James had harsh words for wrong Christians, I think it's a consolation that he gives them to remind them that the day is going to come when all is going to be right. And so they can stop living worldly and seek to repent and live rightly. Now I'm going to try to expound on this tonight. But this is one of the reasons why I believe he's writing the rich people as unbelievers. Okay, Now, it doesn't say anything in here about the eternal state of these people. It just says that they have judgment, and that judgment's pronounced, and ain't nothing going to change that judgment. It doesn't necessarily say anything about their eternal standing before Christ. But through my studies, that's why it matters to me. And so a lot of people had asked. Like I said, discerning authorial intent should be every Bible student's goal. Not enough to just read a verse and say, okay, 2 Timothy 2.15, you know, we got to study to show ourselves approved of workmen. It need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Got it. What did Paul mean when he said that? What does it mean? Time and time again, we've read in the book of James, a verse here, a verse there, faith without works is dead. We can go on a tangent on that. What did James mean when he wrote that? doesn't mean if you don't have works that you're not a Christian. That's not what James means. What is his authorial intent? And it takes a lot of studying. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of meditation on Scripture. And so we've seen that time and time again in the book of James. And I would encourage us also to just say, okay, let's see what I believe through study this has to deal with. So when we're reading these passages, just know that I am interpreting this in light of the fact that the rich men are materialistic unbelievers. They're wealthy unbelievers. Like I said, you have some great people that believe the other side. You have great people that believe the other side, like me. But this is how I'm taking this. And when I stand before Jesus Christ, at least I can say, this is why I believed it was like that. Application is going to be very similar. But Now what's interesting is Dr. Robbie Dean, who's a professor at Schaefer University, and uh, he's a pastor at another uh, church, he brings out something very interesting here in verse number one where it says, weep and howl. Weep and howl. Now I'm just going to read this off to you. This is out of one of his uh, Bible studies on this. He says, weep and howl begins with the aorist active imperative, second person plural of a particular verb. 
that's a lot. That's a mouthful. But this is interesting, though, because once you can... Sorry, Gabe. Ow. Once you can parse the original language, you can draw out some amazing things in this. He says, okay, uh, says, uh, which means to weep, wail, lament, or cry. Says this is not simply an emotional reaction. This is the kind of weeping and wailing that is a result of extreme pain. This is a command to those people to weep, and it means to recognize the misery that you have in your life. This is not an imperative. It is a participle. When he says it's a participle, he's talking about how. Weep is an imperative. Weep is a command. In the Greek, in the original language, how is not an imperative. How is a participle. A participle, we're familiar with the ending of ed or ing. He says this is a participle. It's an anarthrous participle, which means that there is no definite article. The lack of a definite article means that it's adverbial. It is an adverb of the manner describing weeping. In other words, what Dr. Robbie Dean is saying that here in the scripture, it says, weep, howling for your misery has come upon you. And so the howling is the type of weeping that they are doing. James isn't telling them necessarily weep and howl, do both of those things. But when you get to the original language of the howling is the type of grief and the weeping that they are to do. And so it's just, it's amazing. Once you start digging into just language and parsing, we can draw so much out of language in the scriptures that makes it even come so much more alive. So now we can see intense emotional pain and extreme pain is what James is trying to get through to these rich men. You see, he says, why? Because the misery, it says here, the miseries that shall come upon you. They're commanded to weep while howling is a reaction to the response, intense grief and remorse. And we've already talked about that. What's interesting in the passage in 1 through 6 is James 5, 1 talks about what they're to do. James 5, 2 to 3 tells them how they're to do it, how misery is coming upon them. And then the rest of that passage is telling them why that misery is coming upon them. So James breaks this down pretty neatly. Weep, howling for the misery has come upon you. How is it coming and why is it coming? James isn't leaving them in the dark. These are things that we can look and we can learn and we can apply to our lives as well, even though I believe he's writing to unbelievers. So the first part is how. How is the misery coming upon them? And we can read this here in verses 2 and 3. It says, your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were by fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last day. So it's interesting, again, these are all in the perfect tense. These things, according to Scripture, have already been done and have already been judged. Now, if you talk to a skeptic, if you talk to a critic, an atheist of the Bible, one thing that they may try to point out is here in James chapter 5, he says, your gold and silver is cankered. Your gold and silver is rusted or corroded. But gold and silver doesn't rust. Pure gold and silver doesn't corrode. I had to look that up. There's, it doesn't rust or break down like that. What's interesting is that word for uh, corroded or rust as well can also be used figuratively as a venom 
from a snake. And so how the venom can go inside of an individual and just corrupt and decay their body and cause them an infection and sickness as well. And I think more or less, number one, I think God, the author of scripture, knows that gold and silver, if it doesn't corrupt, corrust, uh, corrode and rust, that he would know that. But number two, the figurative sense as well would not be uncommon to the rest of what James has said in this letter also. He called their mouths of as far as a fountain and things like that in chapter three and elsewhere he used a lot of wordplay as well. And so what, what I believe he's telling them is saying that all these things you have heaped up, they have infected you and they're going to keep infecting you until the last days. And we can go on long and long about that. And he says again, all these things are done. To these rich people, written in the perfect tense, it reads as though there is nothing they can do to stop this judgment from coming. Judgment has been decreed. And it makes me think, if these are wealthy unbelievers, these are rich unbelievers, what does this mean? What does it mean that you have heaped up treasure until the last days in verse number three? Well, it makes me think of Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12. All the dead that have not died in Christ are risen, stand before God at the great white throne judgment, but before they are cast into the lake of fire forever, they're judged out of the books. And the books contain works that they have done. I believe this is an allusion or an inference to that particular judgment. And the fact that these rich people were so focused on their possessions, their wealth, that God has pronounced judgment is going to happen, is a done deal, nothing's going to change it. It says they will be a witness against you at the last days. I believe would be leading to the lake of fire incident. Just like believers are judged at the judgment seat of Christ based on works, Unbelievers, Revelation and elsewhere talks about they are judged, unbelievers, based upon their works apart from Christ. That's where people get an idea that there are different degrees of punishment in hell, if you will. So that's what I'm looking at as far as all these things. Now it's interesting when it says the riches and the garments and the gold and silver. Most people equate this in three different categories. That their riches or their wealth, their abundance, if you will, is their sustenance, their food, their livestock, things like that, their garments, their royal garments, their collection of clothes. When a lot of people didn't have money to have different wardrobes, they've had plenty. And then the gold and silver, their material, their riches, their, their monies, if you will, all those things God had pronounced judgment. So when people put, put focus and emphasis on their status, when they put their focus emphasis on their finances or in their accumulation of possessions, they're all gods. God can give, God can take away, you know? And so it happens with the just and the unjust. And so these things are happening to these rich people. Now he goes on to say, why? Why is all this happening? And we read here in verse number four, it says, behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Savoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. These are some pretty uh, 
pretty strong words here. So James is saying, as far as these rich people, what most likely is happening is they've had, a, they've had land, they've had large plots of, of land in an agricultural society. And so the people that were hired there, they would work for a day's wage and they would get paid daily. What James is saying is these rich people, you guys aren't even paying your people. And these daily wages from the studies of different places that I've looked at, they work these day jobs so that they can eat day to day. And so when they're not getting paid their daily wage, they're not able to eat their daily meal. So these rich people are pretty much what? uh, Extorting? They're pretty much getting free labor? And they could care less. And it's very fascinating to me. It says that in verse number four, the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of God. God's not ignorant of your pleas and my pleas. God's not ignorant of your cries and my cries. And I don't care what world religion you look at. No world religion apart from Christianity has a personal God like Jehovah that cares, that attends to our cries. And here we see it again, that he's heard their petitions. And the, the, the word there, Lord of Sabaoth, is the, it comes from the Hebrew. We see it very often in the Old Testament. It's the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The hosts is meaning the, the armies. And so we've talked about this in the past. This is God of the army, the angelic army or the commander the commander of the angelic army, the commander of the heavenly army, whatever the case is. This is a militarily uh, identified name of God. And I think that's used purposefully, number one, because this is scripture, but number two, because if anybody has the ability to do anything, it would be the governmental authority and Jesus Christ, God is the highest governmental authority there is. And he says, hey, your boss over here, they're going to answer to me, the Lord of hosts. I think that's a powerful one. He could have said, Lord of Sudeku. He could have said, Elroy. He could have said, Yahweh. He could have said, eh. he chose Lord of hosts. And I think there's a reason why that general army name was used. And so not only that, they lived a, a life of spoiled luxury. They cared not about the poor that were around them. They didn't care as far as taking care of them, let alone paying their wages, but try to give their almsgiving. One of the things in the Jewish community was to give alms for the poor, for the needy. They didn't do that. Matter of fact, they probably flaunted it. And then here it says, you have lived in pleasure and you have been wanting, you have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Anybody that's familiar with farming and raising livestock would understand most likely you're feeding your livestock healthily so that when it's time to butcher them, you have a significant amount of meat. They're talking about these rich people. They're nourishing themselves. They are not withholding anything from them. They're fattening themselves up with all the riches, wealth. And if you want to see what that looks like, you can read the book of uh, Ecclesiastes because Solomon writes all about that. And at the end of the day, he calls it what? Vanity. All vanity. These are the things that they are doing. And he says they condemned and they killed the just. Now, some people believe when it's referencing they killed the just, the just being those that are Christians, believers. Uh, some people believe that this is like physical murder and the fact that if you're not paying them their daily wage, their day salary, they're not able to eat. And if this is going on, then they're probably starving or trying to fight for food. 
other people, I would lean more to the fact that this is maybe a aspect of uh, uh, just not loving your fellow man. Jesus Christ said, if you, if you have hate in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. And so it could ask, be that aspect there. And so they're playing judge over these people when they should be taking care of them with the money and the wealth, the possessions that God has blessed them with. They chose to squander them, squander it on themselves. And the reason why we talked about all the rich people in the beginning is to realize that being rich isn't a sin. But if God has blessed us with possessions or with financial security, part of the reason why he's blessed certain people the way that they have, they've been blessed, because I think God knows who are the generous givers out there that have such a heart of benevolence and compassion to take care of people that are in need. And if you've ever given money, unexpected money to somebody that's in need, can't deny there's a good feeling about that. Because you've looked at, I could use this money on buying another car or whatever, but you know what, I felt led, God told me to give it to this missionary, whatever the case is. You have to admit, that feels good because you have worked alongside of the Holy Spirit to do a work that God has put inside of you. And so it's not riches that are sinful, it's the mismanagement of the riches that are sinful. Now, some people, Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum believes these rich people that James is actually talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He believes that he's actually condemning them in the fact that this judgment being in the perfect tense is judgment that's going to happen in A.D. 70. Now, remember, Jesus Christ said because they have uh, rejected him as the Messiah, that judgment was coming. That judgment was coming by the form of Rome and Titus, the general Titus, going to sack and siege Jerusalem and uh, murder a lot of people. And so some people, Frutenbaum, believe this is a reference to the judgment coming in AD 70 in Jerusalem. It could be, I don't necessarily hold that view, but I do like giving other uh, uh, options. What we do know within the book of James and the letter of James is James chapter 1, verse number 11 we read that blessed is man that, or verse number 11, that for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth, the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace and the fashion of it perisheth. So also is a rich man fade in his ways. You see, James has already once talked about the, the aspect of mismanaging wealth and the aspect of putting our faith and our trust in our wealth and our financial security. And he says, all this stuff's going to go away. It's all going to fade. And I can't help but think when, he's, when James is writing this in chapter 5, to go back to Luke chapter 12, when Jesus tells this story, and this guy built barn and put all his stuff in there, he's like, I got all this stuff, I'm set. The apocalypse could come, Hamas can come, I'm good. And Jesus says, you fool, this night, this night, your soul is required of you. I'd have to go back to the actual story to find out. I think he was just telling a story. So, but he ends it there. He says, so is he that lays up treasure for himself and not towards God. And so the scathing rebuke James is giving to these people is the fact that these are people that are trying to heap treasure for themselves and themselves only, closing up their bowels of compassion, ignoring everybody else. 
put it more clearly, I think he's talking about Jewish unbelievers. Because in James chapter 1, verse number 1, again, he's writing to 12 tribes scattered abroad. These tribes could be also a mix of believers and unbelievers. So if he's writing to Jewish unbelievers that have put so much stock and faith in their wealth and their monies, then they would understand everything he's saying here. And to me, it just fits. So, but... And so those who trust in riches and wealth and not in God will be regretful. It makes me think of Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave his life out there trying to reach a lost tribe. Because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's pretty powerful. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep. We can't keep our money. We can't keep everything we stock up in our barnyards. When we're gone, it matters not. What was in our bank account? He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. If we invest in eternal things, we will never lose the eternal rewards. Jesus Christ said it, store up not treasure on earth where moth, moth rust and corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but what? Lay up treasure in heaven. So the whole aspect of this rich wealth aspect is where are we putting our wealth? Where are we putting our riches? Not bad to spend a little money on ourselves, but if that is our only priority, if that is our only desire, something wrong with us. Something wrong with us. See, then we get into the last passage of this chapter for, for the night. It says in verse number seven, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren and the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Jove, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So hear this last passage. So he just got done talking about the rich again. It really seems to appear that he is contrasting these rich with these brethren. And notice here in verses 7 through 11, he stops talking about the rich plus some brethren three times in this passage. And he's still rebuking them. He's still offering a slight rebuke because he says, grudge not one against another. Again, while I believe personally this is talking about unbelievers as far as the rich is concerned. So question, here in verse 7, it says, be patient, therefore. I just want to open it up real quick, briefly. Why do you think the therefore is there? What is he trying to reintroduce or, or uh, bring back up? Remember, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you always ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? And so, as remember, the judgment that is upon the rich who have shut their bowels of compassion says, therefore, because I have told you this, because I have just spoken out against these rich that are shutting all their compassion, their bowels, they're not helping, they're storing themselves up with all their wealth and abundance, because of all that, remember, the judgment is coming. Because of what I have just told you, be patient. Be patient. 
And so when we see the wicked world do wicked things wickedly, to me it's like Jesus is telling me, be patient. Patient. Why? Two times he says, coming of the Lord. There's a lot of atrocities going on in the world. He was going on with Hamas and how everybody's, how a lot of people are trying to paint Israel as the instigator and the bad guy. And that's far from the truth. But we see struggle after struggle, stress after stress, library issues, just everything going on. This world needs Jesus. No matter all the struggles, maybe the struggles you and I are personally going through in our families, in our lives, Jesus says, be patient. I'm coming. That's powerful to me. You see, you know, we, we get ready for, you know, all of us, we get ready to go on a vacation, right? You have a stressful week at work. Very stressful week. You know, right before you go on vacation, that week's always really bad. Deadlines, timelines, customers always mad, griping, things like that. But you got vacation coming up next week, right? You can push through that last week. Why? Because you know the vacation's coming. That's not going to trip you up because you know this is happening. You're going to be gone in a matter of days. But be patient. Deal with your bad customers because next week I'm going to be in Blue Ridge, Georgia in the mountains in the cabin, right? That's what he's saying. You may be having a horrible week, a horrible day, a horrible time. Be patient because Christ is coming back. You see, it's interesting. Why does James even mention the fact that Jesus is coming back? For what purpose? Does that really help them then and there? I really believe it does. You see, he says in verse 7, to establish your hearts, be firm, be resolute, be unwavering in your faith and in your commitment and in your conviction of God's word. And in that, do not grudge against one another. Encourage one another. And if you need to know how to live in the light of persecution, suffering, and trials, just look at the Old Testament. Just look at these people that have suffered some extreme afflictions. Matter of fact, right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. You see, how the world measures success and how the God measures success are completely different. Completely different. You see, in the middle of their trials, when we're looking at Job, when we're looking at these prophets, I imagined in the middle of their trials, they've struggled a time or two. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife twice. Isaac did the same thing. You see, they struggled, but they also did some very, very good things, very great feats of faith. And so when they're looking back now of what they did then, I imagine they're so glad they didn't waver anymore that they did. 
that they kept firm in the conviction and the faith and the trust in what God's word said and what to do. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day struggle. We got to play the long game. And that's the only way we're going to be able to have and maintain the peace of God in the middle of those trials. You see, it's amazing. When you look at the letter of James, here in chapter 5, verse number 11, he says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. We count them blessed which endure. Remember in the beginning of the book of James, in chapter 1, verse number 12, he says, Blessed is man that endures temptation, because when he has tried, he will receive the crown of life. You see, James begins the letter discussing the need for patience and endurance. James closes, is closing his letter with the same encouragement during the struggle. He sort of bookends his letter with those that are struggling in persecution to maintain faith and endurance. And here, just after talking about how God is not overlooking how the rich are treating and despising and overlooking the, the poor, the Jewish Christians, saying, have patience, endure until the end. See, in this life, we're going to have trials. If you're living the Christian life right, you will be mistreated and oppressed and persecuted. Jesus Christ said in Philippians 1.29, for it is given unto you not only to believe on me, but also to suffer for my namesake. And so if we're living the Christian life right in a dark world, we're going to bring dark forces upon us. The greater our witness for Christ, the greater our target on our back. A question I've had going through this, the persecuted church. Seems like the persecuted church is just so joyful. You know, they're going through some horrible struggles and trials, things we can't comprehend. You know, and, and you've heard it before, and no matter how you want to put it, fact over feelings, truth over temperament, revelation over reaction, word over worry, scripture over suspicion, it doesn't matter. I think it all goes back to James and the coming of the Lord. Persecuted church doesn't just know about the coming of the Lord. They trust the coming of the Lord. It's one thing to know what Scripture says. Something completely different to fully trust what God's Word says. That, I fully believe, is what gives them strength. Day in, day out. Because they know no matter what they're going through, Christ is on the throne One day I may be like Stephen, look up the heavens part, Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God and usher me home, giving my life as a martyr. Why? Because they don't just know, they fully trust. And that gives them peace in the struggles they're going through. No matter what you and I go through or how dark the days in our life get, our peace comes from trusting that Jesus Christ is standing at the door, ready. For those of us who are in the midst of the struggle, trust that the temporal pain, and the temporal grief, is all going to pale in comparison to the eternity we're going to have with Christ. And for those that can endure successfully the trials and the struggles, James says to him will be given a crown of life. I don't think it's a coincidence that sort of James bookends his letter. Early church, going through the dispersion, persecuted heavily by everybody around him, 
And on both ends of the letter, he says, endure, endure, be patient. You will be rewarded. And then he says, because Christ is coming back. That, I think, is what the church missed. We've forgotten it. And so, as far as this coming week, I don't know what you're going through. You don't know everything we're going through. All I just encourage us all to do is, no matter what's going on, just know he's coming. And that should give us all the peace we need stand in the middle of our struggles. Let's pray. God, I thank you just for this study and just the encouragement that your word gives. And Lord, we're thankful for the fact that your word tells us that you love us, you're listening, our cries don't go on a deaf ear, but also, Lord, that you are ready and waiting to come. And so, Lord, while we know the truth of the word, just allow us to have a firmer conviction and trust that truth, especially in the bad struggles and the situations and trials we find ourselves in. So, Lord, just uh, give us the peace and the assurance and the conviction of holding fast, knowing that you're waiting for us. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.